This is an ABC podcast. There's nothing so old as old technology, particularly technology that was slated to rocket us into the future but actually struggled to get off the launch pad. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. On Future Tense, some lessons from one of Silicon Valley's forgotten failures, how to re-embrace serendipity and the dangers of high-speed finance. Quinn Myers is a Chicago-based journalist and the author of a new book called Google Glass. Remember Google Glass? It was the metaverse of its day, the chat GPT of its day. Internet-connected spectacles that we were all going to be wearing and which would make every look, every glance, every eye movement an opportunity for connectivity. Google Glass is now long gone. But as Quinn Myers explains, it remains both a cautionary tale and a punchline. Well, I guess first, the cautionary tale is just the way Silicon Valley or, or the tech industry operates in a way that, you know, they sort of pursue what they want to pursue regardless of, of what people want or need. And, you know, until I guess in the case of Google Glass, the shareholders eventually stepped in and said, like, why are you pouring so much money into this? And as a punchline, it was kind of different side of that coin, which was that people saw Google pursuing this and they saw what Google wanted people to think it was, but the reality of the situation was so much different. And I think it kind of revealed the arrogance of Google at the time. And eventually people just laughed at it because, you know, when it came out, it didn't really work. You know, the batteries got hot. It was priced at $1,500, which was exorbitant compared to phones and stuff like that. Google was sure that they were going to replace iPhones, that this was the next big thing, but it fell wildly short of that goal. And everyone just kind of saw that they didn't accomplish that and, and laughed and basically kind of laughed at them. And worse for the company, it was seen by many people as creepy, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The camera really worried people. There's fears about facial recognition. The idea that people could be recording you at any time. You think about when you're in public on the train or something, and someone has their camera out, and, you, and if you knew they were recording you or could record you kind of surreptitiously, you would be a little more buttoned up. You wouldn't act normal. And Glass threatened to just kind of do that on a widespread scale, and I don't think that was something Google really reckoned with before they came out with it. Now, Google Glass is a footnote in history, but for quite a few years there, it was predicted to be the future of the internet. Lots of people got very excited about it particularly tech journalists and, and people in the, the tech industry. Just remind us how much money and effort the company poured into that project, because it was quite substantial, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. They had not really branched into physical products yet, and this was their first one. And so this was a really big deal. They not only wanted it to be like their marquee product, but this was going to potentially replace phones, maybe computers, their their idea was like a single screen life was what they are aiming for. They poured untold billions of dollars into this, working on it in their secret lab in Mountain View or marketing. The marketing was wild for Google Glass because they needed it to succeed. Now, here's the thing that really surprised me. It comes through very clearly in your book that right from the beginning, there was all this hype, as you say, associated with the development of Glass. But what was surprising was that the company had never really worked out 
what its marketable function was. So they'd never really worked out a business model for the technology. How did that happen? So in part, it was that when Google Glass first came out, it was a beta product. And, and the idea behind this was that they would beta test it in real life, just like they do with their software. You know, Gmail was a beta that only a few people had at first. They figured out how people used it, what the bugs were, and then they released it to everybody. Glass was supposed to be the same thing, but software and hardware are different, was one of their lessons. But they also then marketed it as a finished product. So people, you know, when it was a beta product and people didn't really know what it was for or what to use it for, that caused a lot of confusion and just consternation over this. At the same time, there wasn't really a leading utility for Glass. They pitched it as something that you would just wear all the time. You would get texts, emails, you would record videos, you could take pictures, you could post to social media. It was, it was supposed to be your phone on your face. But that didn't work out as well because people are used to using their phones. Everyone is pretty good at that stuff on their phones. It's nice. You can put it away in your pocket. So transitioning to a whole new technology that works with your life in a different way was a huge hurdle. And, and I think without a leading utility that said, Glass does this head and shoulders above your phone, whether it was pictures or videos or anything, they couldn't say that. And, and without that kind of leading utility, there wasn't anything to get people to kind of like try it out or start wearing it in the first place. So they forgot about a business model, but uh, as you also point out, they didn't <laughs> consider the challenge that was posed to social norms, you know, some of the surveillance and the way people might be freaked out about that, that we talked about just before. Would things have been different, do you think, if they'd begun market testing almost straight away? Because there was a period, wasn't there, of very, very heavy secrecy, which, which they also played on for marketing purposes. I'm not sure. It's hard to say whether, you know, the privacy issues would have come up before or after. I think some of the privacy issues were just overblown because, the, you know, the camera... It couldn't record all day by any means. It could record it like in like 10 second intervals and then it would get kind of hot and <laughs> the battery would drain, you know, it wasn't anywhere near it. But people were worried about that and, and rightly so. The lack of glasses like being a complete product just kind of allowed people's imaginations to kind of spiral in the worst ways. And they couldn't really tamp down on that in a way to save glass before it's too late. And a bit like Mark Zuckerberg and the metaverse, they lost the narrative, the marketing narrative which cost them dearly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, pretty quickly, there was a rift between the people who were marketing Glass and the people who built it. You know, this groundbreaking, trailblazing piece of technology that was way ahead of its time. And then marketing kind of came out and said, you know, what it wasn't. One of the quotes that really sticks with me from the book is Sebastian Thrun, who's genius engineer at Google. He, he was a founder of Google X. Google Glass, he described as his baby. He's known as like the godfather of Glass or one of them. He said, if I could go back and change one thing, it would be to market it as, as a GoPro, just a GoPro that you wear on your face and make them sunglasses. So you can only wear them like outside. You wear them when you're hiking, riding your bike. And then, you know, you don't have to deal with any of the privacy issues of wearing them to dinner or interacting with people. And I think that totally makes sense and, and is kind of what they're doing now what Meta is doing with the Ray-Ban stories. Silicon Valley in general and the technology sector, what do you think they learned from the experience? Or, or what, what do you think they've picked up 10 years on? I would say the marketing has certainly changed. One thing I kept circling back to was Alexa and Google Home. People had similar privacy concerns when those came out. They thought like, oh, these things can just record you. 
in your house. Like, why would I invite Amazon, the biggest corporations in the world, to just be in my house and potentially recording all the time? But then eventually that concern kind of faded away. And now everybody or a lot of people have smart home speakers and stuff like that. And and I think that's because they didn't overblow what Alexa could do or or they didn't, you know, market it saying athletes and celebrities and models use Alexa, so you should too. I think, you know, there's a very different approach with the marketing. So what was the take-home message for you from the book and the experience of Google Glass? My main takeaway, and as I conclude the book in this way, was that people should continue to push back on Silicon Valley's further and further advance into our private lives, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. They're trying to create a world basically where they can mine more data from our lives, track us. People should continue to push back on this and be vocal about it. I think today, one of the things I talked about in the book is, you know, at the time with Glass, there were a lot of like independent blogs and, and there's a much more thriving media ecosphere for people to push back and be very loud about this. And that doesn't exist anymore because of how Silicon Valley has mined the media and journalism industry and totally flipped it on its head. So there are just a fewer outlets to report on this stuff. So that was my takeaway. Just continue to, you know, call Silicon Valley on their, you know, missteps. Well, Quinn Myers, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Let's be real about this. It's hard to break free of the algorithmic shackles of modern day life. I'm Clive Thompson, columnist for Wired and writer for the New York Times Magazine. And luckily, Clive is here to help us exercise a bit more personal control over what we look at and read. He wants to rewild our attention. In fact, he's developed his own search tool to help us. It's called the Weird Old Book Finder. The thing about our attention is that, you know, what you pay attention to kind of really informs your personality. And these days, an awful lot of what we pay attention to is the stuff that we see on social media. You know, whether that's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. And that stuff has all been, you know, picked for us by algorithms that are trying to keep us engaged. They're trying to keep us in our seats so we'll never leave that social media network, right? You know? And what that means is they tend to go for stuff that's very similar. It's like, here's the stuff that everyone's already looking at, Clive. Why don't you look at it too, you know? We know it's popular because everyone's already clicking on it on Twitter. And so if you spend a lot of time on those social networks, you wind up looking at the exact same stuff that everyone else is looking at, stuff that's, you know, blowing up and making everyone laugh or making everyone enraged right now. And, you know, when I go into Twitter and I look at what it's recommending me to look at, you know, it winds up feeling like monocropped in the way that when you go out to the American Midwest and you see, you know, hundreds of miles of nothing but fields of corn, right? Because for various reasons, the government has encouraged everyone to grow just corn and it gets very monotonous and dull. And that's sort of what I feel has been happening to my attention span under the influence of these algorithms. They have sort of monocropped my attention. And yet the original promise of the internet itself was variety, wasn't it? That you could access almost anything anywhere. Absolutely. I mean, like, if you go back to the 1990s, and I'm old enough to have been on the internet in the 90s, you know, the idea was, wow, anyone could have a blog or anyone could publish weird stuff. And so you were going to get a greater diversity 
of sources, of culture, than you got just looking at the newspapers and local television stations in your town. And you know, the thing is, I think that actually was kind of true for maybe the first, you know, 10 years of the internet or so. Like if you were to go back, if, if you and I were to step in a time machine, bring like 10 people from Twitter or TikTok back to a time machine in like 2001, the internet was a lot weirder back then, right? There was a lot of kookier, more offbeat stuff. I think it got duller because of the success of these large social networks. So there's been a narrowing of choice and the profiles that algorithms create for each of us, the profiles that they use for recommendation, they're also narrow, aren't they? I think the word you use is anemic. Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, like every once in a while I've looked at, like you can sort of download and look at the profile of what Facebook thinks you're like. And, you know, when I log into Medium, a site that I publish a lot on, it'll say, hey, Clive, you know, here's stuff, you know, with these sort of five or six tags. And it's like, technology, you know, AI, nerd stuff. And I'm like, well, sure. I mean, I'm a technology nerd, so that's not incorrect, but it feels like a very, a very narrow slice of my actual personality where there's all this other stuff I'm also interested in that these algorithms sort of haven't picked up or don't care about, you know, like I'm, I'm interested in, you know, Canadian art, you know, cause I'm from Canada. I'm interested in 18th century poetry. I'm interested in guitar pedals and they, they have real trouble. They, they wind up reducing our personalities to like sort of very crude chalk outlines and then they serve content or they serve stuff directed at this caricature of what you and I are like. So is this idea of yours of of rewilding your attention, is this about trying to foster a a sense of inquisitiveness in people, not just about, you know, expanding what they're able to see and access? Yeah, it's about being intentional about where you put your attention. So instead of sort of relying on these social media sites and their algorithms, it's saying, well, why don't you, why don't I, why doesn't everyone actively try and cultivate a more diverse set of things to look at. Rewilding your attention is about saying, okay, I'm not gonna look at Twitter, I'm not gonna look at Facebook or TikTok. I'm gonna go and just find some odd blogs or some odd publications and I'm gonna look at what they're linking to and I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna get lost in some endless forum discussion of, uh, of something strange on Reddit, you know? And you know, just go to your local library and just find like the latest 30 books that they've got laid out and just pick one up and look at it. And you have like 30 seconds. If something grabs your attention, you know, keep reading it. If not, go to the next one. And you pick up books that don't look like they're anything that you'd find interesting. And you wind up in some weird rat holes. Like I went into my local library and there was a copy of this book called Once They Were Hats. And it's a history of the beaver in North America and how it basically created the first massive corporations in North America, the Hudson's Bay Company and whatnot, and essentially, you know, transformed Canada and early American history. And it was weirdly, wildly absorbing. And I never would have found it if I hadn't just gone there looking for something strange that in no sort of normal part of my life would I think I need to read about beavers right now. But I wound up doing it and it was fantastic. Now, now part of your, uh, your efforts to rewild yourself, your own attention, involved making your own, creating your own search tool called Weird Old Book Finder. Could I get you to explain why that came about and how it came about? Sure. Well, one of the things that is really good for rewilding your attention is looking at very old books, like books like that are about 100 years or 100 years older, say from the 19th century, um, largely because they're often 
you know, really kooky and a little bit off base from the types of things we care about now. Like they were, you know, they were obsessed with like, you know, electricity as this new thing, or they, you know, or they were thinking about different problems in life, or they were thinking about the same things we're thinking about today, but they're just enough removed from our perspectives that everything seems alien and weird. And they're often beautifully illustrated and they're free, right? Because most of these books are now in the public domain. So, you know, they're scanned and they're at places like the Internet Archive or Google Books or Project Gutenberg. So you can sort of, you know, in a few minutes, you know, dig around and find something interesting. And so old books are great, but I wanted to make a little tool that injected some randomness into this, right? So what I did was I, I wrote a little search tool that when you type in any search term you want, like just say, you know, laughter or, you know, politics of Ireland or, you know, Southern recipes, whatever you want. You type it in and it goes to Google Books and it finds books published before 1923, roughly. So that means they're going to be in the public domain. So you'll be able to read them. And it finds all the ones that have that keyword. And then it randomly picks one of them and just puts it on screen for you to start reading right away. So it's instant gratification. You type in the search term and Three seconds later, you are looking at some 19th century, 18th century book that satisfies that search term, and you can just start reading it right then and there. And the idea is to just go immediately from some random term to being deep, hip deep inside some weird 19th century book. And when you search, it, it only returns one book at a time. Why is that? Why did you design it that way? That's because I wanted to avoid the paradox of choice, that psychological theory that when we're given too many options, we actually have trouble picking one and so we walk away. So instead of me saying, all right, here's 30 books that match your search term for, you know, Irish recipes, I'm just going to give you one and just start reading it. If you don't like it, do a search again, take the next book, start reading that. So the idea was to go immediately from the act of searching to the act of reading. This is not just about curiosity, is it? What do you get out of old books that helps you say in your, in your daily life without, you know, overspeaking it, I guess? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, it's just that it, it's stuff that is familiar but alien. You know, the, everyone in the 19th century was worried about the same things we're worried about, you know, how to live a meaningful life, you know, how to find love. Is war going to metastatize and take over the world? So they have the same worries we have, but they are a little removed and a little alien, and that is interesting. One thing that people don't often realise, I guess, is that, you know, the algorithms, yes, they tailor things toward us, but they're also about engineering a way the chance of discovery, aren't they? For, for certain things, engineering away serendipity. They want us to focus in certain areas. That's exactly right. I mean, serendipity, it, you put it perfectly. Serendipity is the act of stumbling upon things that you didn't know that you'd be interested in. And these search engines, not search engines, these social networks are very much concerned at getting rid of serendipity. They want you looking at stuff that is already going viral, that's already the big hot topic of the day, because they know that it has the greatest chance of getting you hooked in. And that sort of dulls your life, right? I mean, this, that's what this whole rewilding idea is about. Step outside of that very narrow cone of focus. Well, Clive Thompson, happy rewilding, and thank you very much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Now, the pace of change, the automation of modern finance and a sense that not everything benefits when we fetishise speed. Here's Brian Klaas from University College London. Everybody has a sort of intuitive sense that the world has sped up, and I think it's validated in the data. 
What we think about when we think about the world moving faster is how different is your life year to year, decade to decade, from the life of your parents, their grandparents, etc. And if you think about the long sweep of human history, most people grew up in the same world their parents grew up in. And now you have a, a very weird inversion in which actually children are teaching adults how to use technology, which never used to be the case. The, the line of transmission used to go the other way. And so, you know, what I think is happening is that the world is technologically transforming at a quicker clip than has ever been true in human history. Now, finance is an area where I think this shows the risks of too quick of a world. And what I mean by that is that we manage money in a way that is so incredibly fast that even humans can't keep up with the pace of change or the technology. And we don't even understand what's happening and also why it's becoming out of control and creating a serious systemic risk in the financial markets. What's actually happening most of the time is high frequency trading involving computers where millions of trades are being done in the blink of an eye. And they're all trying to basically gain an edge of a millisecond over another trader. So in 2010, a group of investors who were trying to gain an edge between Chicago and New York, two historically important stock markets and exchange areas for financial transactions, they basically built 825 miles worth of fiber cable at the cost of $300 million. And the goal of this was simply to shorten the distance marginally. It wasn't like masses of miles that were being shaved off. It was just a, a couple miles because it was a little bit straighter than the, what their competitors had. And they would probably get an edge of three milliseconds for $300 million. Now, three milliseconds, just to put into perspective, is not enough time for a hummingbird to flap its wings once. That happens in 18 milliseconds. So we're talking about an absolutely microscopic unit of time, but for trading three milliseconds, is an eternity because it means that you have information that somebody else doesn't have for that little tiny fraction of a second. If you scale that millisecond after millisecond into minutes and hours, it actually ends up being billions of dollars that you can end up earning through this method. And increasingly, people are now trying to push the laws of physics to basically gain edges. And there's, there's even discussion of using relativity, in which case you basically use the laws of physics to your advantage through space and the distance away from the gravitational pull of the earth to get a marginally quicker edge on your opponents in the stock market. And this is, of course, speculative at the moment. But, you know, we are dealing with some really, really ridiculous expenditures trying to get these informational edges. Ridiculous may be, but nevertheless real. So what's to be done about it? Yeah, I think this is the thing where we have to have a conversation about this as a society, about whether this is a good idea. Because the amount of money at stake here is substantial, but markets are not supposed to be rewarding people for having shorter cables. The transactions, you know, in the past used to be for people who were astute, making good bets, investing in companies that other people didn't realize were going to be the companies of the future. And that created some efficiencies, actually. It was good for society because you get investors who would actually make money for realizing what would change people's lives. Now people are getting rewarded simply because they're able to manipulate time more effectively. But the dark side of this, the dark side of this speed race in financial markets is that we don't understand what's happening anymore. When you think about the stock market, you think about Usain Bolt 
at the starting line and the pistol being shot, the time it takes for him to react to that starting pistol is the same amount of time for 165,000 separate trades of stocks being bought and sold on Wall Street. So, you know, we're talking about a scale that is so fast that it is impossible for us to understand what's actually happening. And the biggest example I found of this, where we really are, are, are drifting into territory we cannot control, is in 2015, the, the authorities in England arrested a 37-year-old man named Navinder Sarau. And he lived in Hounslow in West London. And basically what had happened was a couple years earlier, there was this, what was called the flash crash. It was on May 6th of 2010. And between 2.42 p.m. and 2.47 p.m. Eastern time in the United States, about a trillion dollars of value was wiped off the stock market. The entire stock market crashed and nobody had any, any idea what was happening. For a brief moment, there's a company called Accenture, which earns about $50 billion a year. It's a massive, massive company. And its stock became worth one cent. And the reason for this over five years of investigations was basically this one man in West London who had figured out a weakness in these algorithms that govern trading, had figured out a way to manipulate the market by simply doing a few little bits of trading at volume that disrupted the market so severely that it caused this trillion dollar crash. And you think, you know, do we want to have a stock market and a financial system where one person who basically was doing this just to sort of play with it, he didn't have any financial motives, he was just, you know, curious whether he could manipulate the market himself. And he succeeded. And you think, you think, is this the way we want the stock market to work? Is this how we want our financial future to be governed, such that a one person can crash it? And b it takes us years to figure out how it crashed. And, you know, there have been some regulations put in place after this where they've tried to create circuit breakers, which are basically ways to, to sort of pause trading such that if there is a massive sort of feedback loop that causes these crashes, they can stop them. But I think we have to have a, a serious conversation about whether it's a good idea to concentrate so much speed in something that all of our livelihoods are wrapped up into such that we don't understand it and can't control it. Because as you point out, with that kind of speed, there is no time for any sort of a reflection or reaction, is there? Well, we're basically reliant on computers to save us as well as being the source of all these problems because the circuit breakers have to get triggered in milliseconds too, right? I mean, if the trading is happening at this volume, you can't wait for a person, you know, between 2.42 p.m. and 2.47 p.m. to say, hey, wait a minute, something's going wrong here. Because at that point, you know, you've already lost billions of dollars of value. So you have to build in these circuit breakers, but the circuit breakers are designed by humans. So we have to understand the possible risk. And one of the things that I think is the nature of extremely fast, extremely contingent systems is that we can't anticipate all of these things because we haven't thought of them. I mean, nobody had thought that a single person in West London could wipe out a trillion dollars on the stock market in five minutes. If they had, they would have built a system to stop it. And so I think what you end up with is this arms race where you're always playing catch up, right? You're always sort of trying to anticipate a problem and then a problem arises that you didn't anticipate and then you build another system to try to anticipate the next one. But the problem is, you know, this time around, it was somebody who was not malicious. 
It was someone who was just playing with the stock market. And as, as I say, as far as we can tell, there was no ill intent. He wasn't trying to make lots of money. What happens when a state actor tries to do this or somebody who is genuinely malicious? They are going to try to wreak havoc in ways that potentially have not been anticipated by the authorities. And I just think, you know, at some point we have to think, is this the stock market we want to have? And my view personally is that we have over-optimized modern society. In other words, by trying to squeeze out these marginal efficiency gains for the ever-increasing need for speed, that we have created a world that is much more on a knife's edge than it should be. So I think we're probably better off as a species in the longer run being just, you know, five or 10% less efficient on some of these questions, maybe thinking about whether speed has a role in things like financial trading and trying to slow it down deliberately, and then building in some slack. Instead, we've just sort of chased speed for the sake of it. And I don't think it's making us happier. I don't think people are profoundly more fulfilled in their lives because things happen one second faster than they used to. But I do think that that sort of shaving off of timescales does embed existential risk that could ruin lots and lots of lives. Associate Professor Brian Klaus from University College London. We're also joined today by Clive Thompson, a columnist for Wired and a writer for the New York Times magazine, and journalist and author Quinn Myers, author of the book Google Glass. Thanks as always to my co-creator, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell, and you've been listening to Future Tense. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.